From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We challenge, and it is hard. It's hard to to stand your ground, actually, when you're on the inside. And that, in and of itself, can be a calling to help people get in touch with pain and suffering and understand the way forward and understand what we can do with our power and privilege. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life, and she's the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Before leading that council, Reverend Butler spent 10 years working in the field of international human rights, representing the Presbyterian Church USA at the United Nations, and she's an ordained minister. While mobilizing religious communities to address the AIDS pandemic and advocating for women's rights, she grew passionate about the need to counter religious extremism with a strong religious argument for human rights. Out of that experience, she wrote Born Again, The Christian Right Globalized, which was published by the University of Michigan Press. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. Reverend Jennifer Butler, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me, David. So I'd like to start our conversation at an interesting moment in 2016. And it's a moment that you talk about in your book, Who Stole My Bible? The Reverend William Barber is on a phone call with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And at one point, Reverend William Barber says, America is North Carolina now. And I would love for you to take us to that moment. I realize that you weren't there personally on the call, but you were, you talk about this call in your book. What is going on at that moment? And why does William Barber say America is North Carolina now? Mm, such a good question. This goes to the point that a lot of us were surprised when Donald Trump was elected. And then many, especially people of color, pointed out to us that this was a long time in the making. The, the roots of Donald Trump's election go back decades to the undermining of the civil rights gains that we made in the 60s and 70s. And so what Reverend Barber is referring to there is the conservative movement to basically reverse the civil rights movement, to roll back gains we've made in desegregating public schools, to roll back voting rights advancements that we had made, and to take America back to the Jim Crow era. And North Carolina was ground zero for that experiment. And when you say ground zero for that experiment to take us back to the Jim Crow era, some of my listeners are going to be young enough to not really know what Jim Crow means. So tell us a little bit about what you mean by that phrase, the Jim Crow era. Sure. After the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and Andrew Johnson became president. He ended the era of Reconstruction, which was the era in which 
the South was made to allow African-Americans to vote and to enter society on equal terms. He rolled back all of those gains. And from there, basically, slavery was enacted under a different name, under separate but equal. And from then on, African-Americans had been moving into politics, voting at rates of 60 to 80 percent, occupying elected office. But at that point in time, all of that was rolled back. And until the 60s and 70s, until the civil rights movement came along, that era persisted. Then in the 80s and 90s, as Ronald Reagan became president, the gains that we had made in desegregating public schools were erased. The Voting Rights Act in 2013 was gutted. The enforcement mechanisms of it were gutted. So immediately after that happened, it was a Supreme Court decision, 20 states implemented voter suppression laws, making it harder for people of color to vote. This was to deliver power into the hands of the Republican Party, which then moved to gut public education, to roll back LGBTQ rights, and to implement an agenda that was out of sync with the voters. So if I'm hearing you correctly, North Carolina was one of those states that utilized this leverage to begin to roll back voter participation and African-Americans in public office, the sort of Jim Crow moment that you talked about, and then also used the Ronald Reagan moment to leverage out some of the gains that had happened in terms of equity around education and other and access to public goods. So I'm hearing that North Carolina was one of the center points for this as an experimental strategy of the conservative right for a number of decades. Now, as I say that back to you, have I got it right? You've got it right. And what's also so important about that is that Reverend Barber and the people of the state of North Carolina had over a decade been building a movement to resist that. They had brought a case to the Supreme Court about the um, Voting Rights Act and the ways in which North Carolina had been gerrymandered to suppress voters of color. They eventually won that case, and they began to organize around the state a, a movement that was called Moral Mondays. And... So not only was North Carolina an example in terms of what the conservative movement was trying to accomplish, it was also an example for how we organize to counter such an effort. And so the moment when Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and Reverend William Barber are having this conversation is basically right after Donald Trump has been elected president. And the foretelling that William Barber is saying in this phrase, America is North Carolina now, is that everything that he was fighting against in the Moral Mondays, he's now going to see rolled out on a nationwide scale. Do I understand that correctly? That's right. So it's a prophetic moment, really. It's kind of a recognition of what God has brought about in terms of preparing people of faith for this moment to be more aware of our history, aware of the racism that continues to dominate our politic and, and public policy, and the ways in which a moral voice can rise up to resist that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. We're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. 
Well, I want to take a step back because you've begun to paint a picture for us of a multi-decade effort on the part of political conservatives, but also religious conservatives to try and roll back voting rights and to stand in the way of access to public goods on the part of minorities. And when I'm describing that group of people trying to create these situations in America to make it less easy for certain populations to participate in public life and to participate in civic life, I want to ask a delicate question. Because it seems to me from reading about your background that at least for a period of time, these were kind of your people, that you grew up in an atmosphere where the conversations that lead to these kind of political ends would maybe have been dinner table conversations. Now, I don't want to misstate it. So if I've said that incorrectly, I invite you to correct any point that I have wrong. But would you say that this was the background that you came out of, or would you describe your background differently? It was and it wasn't. So I'm a white Christian who grew up in Atlanta, Georgia in the 1980s. This was the moment in time in which political operatives and corporate donors were creating the Christian right. And I saw friends and family being swept into the Republican Party and in lockstep behind Ronald Reagan. But I was at that moment in high school, I was what you would call a born-again Christian in that I was examining the faith of my parents that they had handed down to me. I attended a large Methodist church on Peachtree Street in Atlanta, Georgia, 10,000 members, all white. And I was examining my faith. And what brought me to decide to follow Jesus by my own decision was his Sermon on the Mount. And his mission statement in Luke chapter four, I've come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. And when I read that as a young teenager struggling with inclusion as someone who was terrified of nuclear Armageddon and the nuclear arms race, our ability to destroy ourselves and our planet, as someone who observed racism around me, even though there was lip service given to us being a new South, I felt like I wanted to follow this Jesus. And I remember very vividly praying that prayer and saying, Jesus, I don't know if you are real or true, but I'm going to follow you and follow in your footsteps and walk in your way, which to me, again, goes back to that mission statement. I have come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. And that's what I've done ever since. But I felt for a long time like I was wandering in the wilderness, struggling to find the words that went with my faith, because what I heard in church and in the white Christian culture around me didn't include that mission statement of Jesus. And I struggled as well to find a community of people in faith who could help me live out that faith. And it took me years to find that and a really long journey that I hope people can be more easily plugged into through my work at Faith and Public Life and through this book that I've just written. Well, when I look at the book, Who Stole My Bible, all throughout, you are bringing in voices who I'm going to assume are some of the voices that helped you find that community. You talk, for example, about voices like Lisa Sharon Harper or Walter Brueggemann or Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove or William Barber, all of these who have helped you to find your community and your place in this kind of way of looking at the world. But maybe for my listeners, what was that journey like as you were casting about and not quite knowing where your place was, who were some of the initial people that you happened upon or who began to mentor you to help you find this way where you felt connected? 
You know, one was my campus chaplain, actually, at William & Mary. I don't think you'll find, you know, his name in the bookstore or on TV, but William Sidney Parks is his name. He went by Pete. And looking back on that, I was very active in the Baptist Student Union. I actually grew up Methodist, but the BSU had this great campus fellowship. And he introduced me to the first woman minister that I ever met. I remember us having nightly meetings, and one of them focused on apartheid in South Africa. Another focused on discussing whether women should be in ministry. I now look back on that, and I realize what he was teaching us was feminist theology. But I wasn't actually exposed to feminist theology until way later in life. He gave me opportunities to lead and theology that would help me express what Jesus was calling me to do in the world. So he's one of my early heroes, one of the unsung heroes, I think, as campus chaplains often are. Well, and there's an interesting moment in your book, Who Stole My Bible, where it's almost like you take that gift that this campus minister Pete gave to you and you hand it on to someone else because you're working in the United Nations and a woman comes up to you and says, my work life is separated from my faith and my faith life is separated from my work and I can't figure out how to bring the two together. And you two have a conversation. And then if I remember correctly from the book, you report that at some point later, this woman came back and said, I've started doing it. Even my husband thinks that I'm crazy, but I'm trying to do it because it's such good news. It's it's almost, if I read that part correctly, like you took that gift that Pete gave you of finding a community and finding a new way to tie the gospel in with your life, and you passed it on to this other person. Now, I I don't want to overstate it. Would you say it a different way, or have I got that story correct? That was exactly right. She was with a leading women's rights organization, and my interfaith coalition had been hosting meetings on global women's rights and religion, which was much contested. And at the time, the Taliban was rising in Afghanistan and women were being subjugated all over the world to religious extremism. So we were fostering this important conversation. And yet there was some wariness of it because the Christian right had led so many people to distrust and dismiss religion altogether. So when she walked into my office, I actually thought she was angry with me because she was gesturing wildly. She was apoplectic and she was saying, well, how are you doing this? How are you bringing faith together in feminism? And it was a real joy to see her go off on this journey and read some of the books that I'd gotten to read in seminary and then come back calling it the good news. Her husband, so afraid that she would get herself in trouble, but she said, I can't be silent about it. It's the good news. And I think throughout my activism, those have been some of the more powerful moments to me because to me it's wrapped up in in claiming our voice and finding our spiritual power. I've seen this time and time again in terms of women in particular needing to deconstruct an oppressive faith and find their way forward, realizing that their faith actually propels them into leadership and to challenge the powers of the day. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. 
That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life, and she's the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. What I'm going to ask is a multi-part set of questions now, and it's going to drive us into the structure of your book. Who Stole My Bible? And I want to start atmospheric and a little abstract, and then we'll get much more concrete about some of the book structures. But there's a point where you reference the notion that Walter Brueggemann and a couple of other theologians talk about regarding the power of imagination and what imagination does. And for my listeners who may be unfamiliar with how Brueggemann talks about imagination over against the royal reality, I'd love for you to flesh that out for us a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. As I continue to look at this concept, I find it in all faiths and all ethical traditions. It just keeps coming up over and over again. But it relates to how tyranny and oppression work. A tyrant and an oppressor or an authoritarian will try to deprive people of all hope. And they do that in a number of ways. The way we most think of is that they oppress people, they threaten people, they throw them in jail. They torture people. There are other ways they do that, though. They take command of truth. They flood the zone with lies. They confuse people. They wear them down. They numb them with consumerism and with this sort of hyper-capitalist, pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps ethic that measures people by their wealth rather than by their human dignity. There's so many ways that they numb us and overwhelm us to the pain that we could be seeing in our midst and addressing, and they cause us to lose all hope. The thing that breaks through empire and authoritarianism, the thing that breaks through that is passion and imagination. And Walter Brueggemann says that's what the prophets bring to us. They enable us to connect with those who are in pain, to connect with our own pain, to break through the numbness of empire to feel again, and then through our imagination to imagine and hope for a world that can be different. Hope, we often think of as like a feeling. Are you feeling hopeful today? So in other words, how good are you feeling about the state of the universe? Hope is actually not a a feeling. It's a commitment. And it's a commitment that is strengthened through our ability and solidarity and community and working for justice together 
to imagine a world that can be different, and then to work to make it so. I really like that answer, and I appreciate you filling in the theoretical side. And now this next question is going to be a bridge to where I want to get concretely with your book, because bodies, when we think about sometimes certain religious faiths, they like to divide bodies from souls or the mind-body duality, right? But one of the things that I find in your book, Who Stole My Bible, and in other sort of liberation theologies is a reconnection of the body to the soul in theological discourse. But one of the things that I'm aware of in terms of tyranny and the power of those who would master reality in the way that you just said is that they try and deprive us of the reflex and the habit of imagination. And so when you say to someone, we can make this better if we hope and if we imagine a better world, sometimes people don't even know how to begin. It's like when I go into my daughter's room and I say, let's clean your room together. And she says, I cannot even imagine how to begin to do this. But, but that's kind of the same problem. When there is that opportunity to imagine a different world with passion, sometimes the tyrants have been so good at their jobs that the bodies cannot even imagine how to do it. And so I'd like you to reflect with me on how we can begin to retrain bodies to imagine and to hope. I love that question. You know, we see some recent examples of that. I tell one story of when child separation happened, when Jeff Sessions announced his zero tolerance policy and they were separating children from migrants at the border. I went with a delegation of women down to the border in McAllen, Texas, and I met there with Sister Norma Pimental, who runs a respite center for migrant families who are coming out of detention. And I watched as a long line of migrant families that came off a bus out of detention for two weeks and having been in detention even after months of struggling from places like Guatemala and Honduras through jungles and through a precarious journey, watched them exhausted walking in a line in a fog over to her respite center. And whenever I tell the story, I can barely tell it. It's such a small thing, but I remember watching a boy on the shoulders of his father. His father was slogging along, carrying him. The boy was slumped over like a wilted plant. And Sister Norma has a ritual of coming out front with all the volunteers. And as the migrants come into her respite center, they stand up and they applaud. <laughs> they cheer them on like heroes and they applaud for them. And as soon as the boy heard that applause and that cheering and that welcome, he perked up and he smiled ear to ear. And as they came into the center, I was outside watching all of this and I looked up and over her door was the motto, restoring human dignity. There's several things going on in that story. One is Sister Norma is incarnational. She is taking what Jesus tells us to do and not just showing us how to live that out, she's living it out. And in doing that, she's actually transforming the world because she's helping us all understand what God means by human dignity. And her ability to do that restores the souls of people who are being oppressed. It restores the souls of the people who are volunteering at her center. It can restore the soul of our nation. If we take the kind of abundance and compassion that she has and realize that it is an all of our interests to work for that kind of world. And it will help us all live lives of, of flourishing and of joy. That's one example that I think of. There are many others. 
that's incredibly powerful. And at various times, I've had the opportunity to cross paths with Sister Norma Pimentel. And I just have to say, your experience mirrors my experience of exactly that commitment to human dignity and just how powerful and wonderful that story that you just gave us is. But this now brings me to a question specifically about your book, because we're thinking about how to restore bodies to the habit of imagining. And I was very aware as I read every single chapter of your book, Who Stole My Bible?, is that you build into every chapter an invitation to imagine, an invitation to step empathically into someone else's experience, an invitation to use your mind to imagine what it would be like to live 2,000 years ago or to be a migrant crossing the border or to be a person who's on the front line standing against a row of policemen as a Black Lives Matter protester. I'm curious about why you chose to bring in these specific sorts of invitations to imagination? And were you trying to provide an opportunity to retrain bodies to hope and to imagine a different world in a way that maybe they hadn't done in a long time? Wow, you're helping me understand my book on a different level. It really was a labor of love. And I think the reason I had to write it that way was that I realized that through the Trump era, what kept me going, what fueled my spirit and gave me courage were these stories in scripture. And when I was in danger, when I was marching for peace at the Capitol, when I was standing in front of Mitch McConnell's office and urging him not to cut 20 million people off healthcare, and then knowing that I would be arrested for not leaving that place when the police asked us to. In those moments, it was these stories that gave me courage to continue on that made my body be able to stay put, even though my socialization told me to run, to be a good girl, to be a good, quote, Christian girl. You know, all of those things that were trained from early on to be that sort of social conformity, those I could feel those screaming within my body, especially that phrase, you're being bad, you're being naughty. But what was the antidote to that was the scriptural voices that told me to stand firm, to lift up human dignity, and to stay focused on justice. And I think it was that that ability that stories have to transform your heart and your soul and your being. That's why the Bible has so many stories. It's why it's full of poetry, because it's trying to move our souls in connection with our body and in connection with human suffering so that we can together work for the liberation of the world and for human flourishing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith and Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. Well, I want to continue with this line of thought because you've begun to talk about this awakening to the suffering and the power of stories. And that's another thing that rang out to me again and again in each of these chapters in your book, Who Stole My Bible, is this call to empathy. We can oftentimes look at Christianity, particularly as it plays itself out in the public square, and we can see it as a kind of rule-based religion. Do this, don't do that commandment. But there's another way of looking at the Christian 
narrative and another way of looking at the gospel, not as a set of do's and don'ts, but as a call to a God who empathizes with us, even to the point of going to the cross. And that struck me so hard as I read this book. And one point in particular stands out. You give us this image of this line of police, this unmoving, unemotional line of police and a a protester who's part of the movement for black lives literally locking eyes with a policeman and saying can't you understand why i'm here don't you understand can't you even feel what i feel and you talk about the protester breaking down falling to his knees in tears because of the immovability of the policeman's gaze and the inability to touch the humanness in that policeman's eyes. And and to me, that's exactly what your book is doing for the reader. Can't you see this? Can't you feel this? It was very powerful for me as I read the book. And I, I'm wondering, as you're thinking about the structure of this book, what did you really want the reader to get from those moments? What were you hoping as you were writing this that they would walk away feeling and not just knowing? I think I wanted them to come away knowing this one, the spiritual power that they have and not being afraid to enter into that compassion and that pain. Because I think a lot of times what comes up for us when we see, I know what comes up for me actually, when I see pain is that voice of judgment. Even though I'm a seasoned social justice activist, there's a tendency to want to protect ourselves from pain, to, to do that, because if we don't protect ourselves psychologically from that, we realize that we are vulnerable. And for example, back when the Black Lives Matter movement started in Ferguson, back in the early days of some of the awareness around this issue of police brutality, I can remember some moments where I was like, Really? You know, I can't, I can't get my head around this. Are the police really this brutal? Are we sure? Like knowing in my logic place that like, oh boy, I better listen to this. But my soul wanting to pull away from it because of the pain that was there. And so I think when we draw near to those who are groaning, and I got this from Walter Brueggemann, he talks about God as being the God who hears the groans of slaves and draws near. We see this in Exodus chapter two. When we draw near to that pain, we draw near to God. And if we can keep our hearts open to that and listen, then we can begin to move forward in joy and solidarity and into liberation. And that is an exciting journey. It can be a daunting journey at times, but it is a journey that will lead you into wholeness and meaning in life. And so that's what I was hoping to do. You just mentioned Exodus chapter 2, and there's a point in your book, Who Stole My Bible, where you also talk about Exodus chapter 1. And I want to think about Exodus 1 in light of this phrase that you just used, people being reminded of the spiritual power that they have. You've touched on this at a couple points in the conversation. You've referenced the fact that you've been talking to people who are female, and you yourself used the phrase a few moments ago of the narrative of being the good girl and the good Christian girl and not causing trouble. And so I'm aware that we socialize women's bodies in a certain way in our culture, in a secular sense, but also in the church. And I want to read that through this notion that you say of reconnecting to the spiritual power that they have, because in Exodus 1, there's a command given by the tyrant to kill all the babies. And the midwives 
come up with a plan. And they decide to use the spiritual power that they have to resist that order to kill the innocent and instead to create a new future and a new possibility. They recover the spiritual power that they have. And I I was very moved when I encountered that passage in your book, Who Stole My Bible? Because it's so rare that in my church experience, I've heard someone dwelling on the power of the midwives and the important choice that the midwives made to recover their spiritual power. And I'm struck by this because to me, this is exactly what I think you're trying to do, even with the title of the book, Who Stole My Bible? You're drawing us back to these stories and saying, did you notice this? Did did you really notice this? Did you notice how not only that applied 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, but it also applies now? And and this movement back and forth through time, where you're drawing us in a chapter back to something that happens in an ancient time, maybe to something in more recent history, but then you're always connecting it to now. How can listeners begin to reconnect with their spiritual power in the present that they may have, but that may have been forgotten or they or may have been covered over by these powers of tyranny? That's a really good question. I think for those who whose book is the Bible, one of the things I'm trying to encourage is that we go back and look at these stories and we understand them as the stories of spiritual ancestors who fought against tyrants like Pharaoh and the Roman Empire and prevailed. And if you start to understand the stories that way, rather than the way that many of us were taught those stories, which is we were taught there were stories about personal piety or what you should and shouldn't do. Even the Ten Commandments, it's not a list so much of what we should and shouldn't do. It's a vision for how we can live together. Once we understand that, then those stories begin to really speak to us in our current moment. And they tell us how to resist and how to be in this world that is so broken. The Bible is full of spiritual strategies and tactics, and most importantly, a vision for who we can be that can really power us into this world that we're facing for the next several years that is going to be a battle for democracy and the vision of human equality. Whatever your faith tradition, it may not be Christian, it may be Buddhist, it may be a secular ethic, to find ways to ground yourself in stories that can power you into the future is really critical at this moment. It's almost, in your answer, like you believe that the Bible is a book of revolution. Now, am I overstating that when I say that's what I'm hearing and what you're saying, or would you say it a different way, or am I onto something here? You're onto something. It is a revolutionary book. In fact, the Bible is so radical that when slaveholders began to allow in missionaries. They made missionaries create a slave Bible because the story of Exodus and many of the other stories was so revolutionary that it was sparking slave revolts. So they created a slave Bible and cut out all of those sections. They left in Hebrew slavery, but they left out the liberation of the Hebrew people and many of the the passages around the prophets. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. We're talking today about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations, all available for your listening pleasure for free. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. We're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. One thing that was clear to me about your book, Who Stole My Bible? is that it was written in the context of the Donald Trump presidency. And a few moments ago, before the last break, you said something that sort of caught my attention. You talked about a long haul mentality to reclaim our democracy. And I think some of my listeners who come to your book might find that to be a curious thing to say, because Donald Trump's out of office now. The problem is solved, right? Unfortunately, it's not. The systems that led us to elect Donald Trump are still in place. We've seen from the inability of Republicans in Senate to vote to convict Donald Trump of leading that insurrection at the Capitol, we see that the base of the Republican Party now is a Trumpian base. It's very wedded to Trump. Therefore, the Republican Party has been hijacked by Trump. We see Trump talking about the 2024 bid. We see him talking about creating his own separate party. We also see that 50% of the country is Christian nationalist, is either an advocate for that or accommodationist of that worldview, according to a study done by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. We also see continued high support among white Christian evangelicals for Donald Trump, despite what happened at the Capitol on that day. And we have a lot of work to do to pull people out of that wilderness of supporting what essentially is a cult devoted to a white supremacist president and an authoritarian leader. And we have a lot of work to do to shore up our democratic systems so that these kinds of leaders can't be elected again through gerrymandering and voter suppression. So if I'm hearing your answer correctly, what we began our conversation discussing, this sort of notion that America is North Carolina now, when I asked you that question, you drew us back into the long history that led to the kind of situations of gerrymandering and voter suppression in North Carolina. And now you're tying that whole system into Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump was not the cause of that. He was the result of these systems being in place. And if I'm hearing you correctly, the long haul is to dismantle all of these different systems that have led to the kind of suppression of access to public goods, the suppression to voting, 
all of that that has led to the inequities that we have here in our current state of America, where at, at one point you talk about another analysis that says America is no longer a democracy. It slipped to a democracy in peril or maybe even a failing democracy. And so am I hearing you correctly that it, everywhere that we look, there are these systemic long-term threats that now need to be addressed now that the acute moment of Donald Trump has passed, we still have a lot of work to do. That's right. Over 20 states have voter suppression laws that completely change the electorate, that deny the will of voters. Those voter suppression laws were put in place thanks to funding from corporate actors who really are about an economic agenda of deregulating environmental protections and exploiting cheap labor and not regulating the financial markets and driving up economic inequality so that they can make a profit. So in the wake, too, of the capital insurrection, we should also note what's happening in a state like Georgia that in some ways looked heroic in electing Asaf and Warnock as senators, the incredible organizing of people in that state, even the Republicans, the Secretary of State, who actually stood up against the president's effort to hijack the election. But in the wake of the election, Georgia has several voter suppression laws that are rolling forward in the state legislature. And we're seeing that all over the country. So they've not been cowed by what happened after the election. They've not been cowed by Trump's lies that the election has been stolen and the impact of that and the near violence, the near lynching of Vice President Pence. So that shows us that the game is still on. They're still continuing right in plain sight to try to turn this country into a white supremacist country again. They're denying the will of voters of color so that white people can remain in power. Well, this might be a good time to shift slightly from focus on your book, Who Stole My Bible, to your work outside of being an author, and that is being the founding executive director of the organization Faith in Public Life. If listeners are unfamiliar with that organization and its work, what do you do and what is your mission? So Faith in Public Life organizes with 50,000 religious leaders around the country. We have offices in four states, Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, and Georgia. And we help organize the faith community to advance justice and the common good through enacting public policies that lift up our values. And you are the founding executive director. About how long has the organization been around? We were started in 2005. And the context for our founding was right after the 2004 elections, where Karl Rove, a political operative, had helped to reelect George W. Bush for a second term by mobilizing what he called values voters. Those voters did not represent what I know to be a values voter. They were focused on discriminating against LGBTQ people. They were anti-reproductive choice. And those voters were said to represent religious Americans, and they don't represent all religious Americans. And so we were founded to really help revitalize the progressive faith voice and to reorganize the community that had been silenced in recent decades and overwhelmed by the Christian right voice. 
So earlier in the conversation, we talked about the Moral Mondays movement of Reverend William Barber, and we've also talked about the civil rights movement that involved a lot of Southern clergy. Is it fair to say that faith in public life traces a line back through movements like the Moral Monday movement and also things like the civil rights movement and its explicit faith focus? Is that the right line for my listeners to get about what faith in public life sees as its lineage and what it's trying to do? That's right. I think we're trying to revitalize so many of the faith-based movements for social justice. The social gospel in the 1920s and 30s that lifted up economic justice, the civil rights movement, the labor movement that was dominated by progressive Catholics, the New Deal that was also advanced by Catholic and Protestant theology, and Judaism, which has lifted up human rights and human dignity. And so we're revitalizing that voice that I think grew a little disorganized in recent decades and less vocal and is now making a comeback thanks to the organizing by many groups, including my own faith in public life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Jennifer Butler. She's the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. Well, one of the things that you invite us to do in your book, Who Stole My Bible, and it's even there in the title, is to reclaim a certain style of reading and to have the boldness to read against the narratives that sometimes we may be offered from the pulpit or from the expert theologians, and I'm scare quoting that. In your own training, how did you learn to recapture that ability to read the Bible with fresh eyes and to read the Bible with a liberating lens? Because I'm certain that there are some listeners who may be very excited by our conversation, but they just don't know where to start. I think there are a number of authors that are leading the way there. And your podcast actually is a great way for people to start because you're featuring a lot of these authors. Every faith tradition has authors that are looking at the liberative aspects of their faith tradition. We're now working with Muslim and Sikh activists in this country who are doing a phenomenal job. Valerie Kaur, who's a Sikh activist, and Parvez Ahmad, who is on our board at Faith and Public Life. My book also has a list of ways to get started if you are uh, Christian in particular. And I think white Christians in particular have a lot of work to do on this. I think we need to follow the lead and listen to scholars of color and Jewish scholars who really understand the Bible much more than we do, because there was such an overt attempt within white Christianity to impose a sort of white supremacist way of looking at theology on scripture. And so for those of us who are white Christians, many of us need to deconstruct that. And one way we see that manifest is in the emphasis among conservative Christians on personal piety and legalism as opposed to right relationship and human dignity and changing the social structures that don't allow for God's vision for human dignity. Well, that raises a question because what we see again and again, and this is true in the backlash against something like critical race theory, but it's also mentioned at certain points in your book, Who Stole My Bible, where you talk about people going to seminary and they're warned, oh, those professors, they're going to try and take your faith from you. I'm thinking about what we might call the resistance to the resistance. So you're inviting people into a way of reading that is resistant to the way that the world is, the the arrangement of the world that supports the interests 
of power. You're interested in bringing about uh, a kind of imaginative rereading that leads to liberation and leads to human flourishing. We can see again and again that when that resistance is brought out, the status quo resists that resistance by either saying, you're a bad girl, you're a bad Christian, you're a bad reader. How can, and so forgive, please forgive the way that I'm going to phrase this. How can we resist the resistance to the resistance, if you follow my logic there? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important to get a community around you. I mean, I know when I was in seminary, here I was coming out of living in Latin America and growing up in the South, and I was trying to put a whole lot together. And there was a circle of women. We used to sit on the floor in our dorm rooms and drink wine. And we would just do theology and try to figure it out. And those women empowered me to claim my voice. And so it's so important to find a community. And I'll say one silver lining of COVID is that you can worship anywhere. So many of us have struggled to find progressive religious communities to worship in. But now you can worship anywhere in the country. So you can go to Otis Moss's congregation in Chicago and you can watch liberation theology preached from an African-American pulpit. And that is one of the starting points, I would say, is pull that community around you so that you can find your voice and stay strong in that truth. Because I think what happens often is the culture does such a number on us. It's hard for us to trust that, that deep knowing that we have within ourselves. And for many of us, as we go on this journey, we have to actually break from friends and family we hold dear. I know on my faith journey, I ended up losing my close relationship with my father. And that was a painful journey to come out of. We wrestled together for many years before he died. But I'm glad in the end that I went on this journey because there's so much joy in the journey. I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your father, but I'm glad that you have that feeling that it was a, a good journey. I, I'm, I'm curious about something else that we've mentioned at several points in the conversation, because we're talking right now about being a resistor, about being an outsider. But at several points, as I've talked to listeners about your background, I've noted that you were the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. That's not an outsider position. That's almost a quintessential insider position for a person of faith. So I'm wondering, what did you learn by being that close to the mechanisms of power that you now apply now that you're standing outside and you're talking about resistance? That is a great question. This was the Obama administration. And, you know, as we know, he held many of our values. He's a deep Christian person of faith. But he often would say to us, I put you in this advisory committee role to organize me and to challenge me. And if you want to see things happen, you have to create the environment out there for me to be able to make them happen. In other words, you have to organize in order to enable me to do the job that you want me to do. I found, you know, as chair of the White House Council that we had to be careful not to lose our prophetic voice. Here we are sitting in the halls of power and we have a friendly president. It could be easy just to listen you know, to those who are like, well, we're in the final year of the administration or we're in the final two years. There's only so much that can be done. But again, the president, to his credit, and his staff were like, you're also here to challenge us. And so we often had to wrestle together. And I would say to people who are walking in the halls of power, if you're not wrestling and challenging those who are in authority, 
and staying true to your own voice, what you know ought to be done, then you're selling out. You're not, you're not walking the walk. And it can be very hard to do. And that's why a spiritual practice is really important. Our advisory council ended up challenging the administration on a number of things to, to be more vocal and to push harder on criminal justice reform, which was very hard in those final days for them to do, and they did it, and to take action on a pipeline that was going through Native American communities and to do that out of respect for religious freedom and respect for the environment. Those were two areas where we really pushed and made headway. And so we challenge, and it is hard. It's hard to to stand your ground, actually, when you're on the inside, and that in and of itself can be a calling. I wonder, since we're talking about the long haul and we're talking about the importance of standing your ground, even when you're so close to the cordons of power, what is it that keeps you hopeful? What keeps me hopeful are the people around me who are doing incredible work against all odds and seeing how that builds over time. So the Black Lives Matter movement in particular grew over a period of years and at times seemed quiet, but what they were doing was organizing in a very open source way all over the country and transforming and training and helping people understand and educating so that when that George Floyd moment came around and there was an uprising all over the country, that looked spontaneous to many of us, but it's the result of really good organizing happening around the country to help people get in touch with pain and suffering and understand the way forward and understand what we can do with our power and privilege. Well, Reverend Jennifer Butler, I read a lot of books, and I just have to say that when I read your book, Who Stole My Bible, it knocked my socks off. I find your book to be really deep, but also incredibly tangible, actionable. It Every time that I was coming to a new chapter, I was realizing that there are ways that I can apply this both in my own life and with my family, the things that you're suggesting, but also I can bring this into the classroom and share it with my students. I'm really grateful that you took the time to write this book. But I also have to say, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and it's a real treat for me to get a chance to talk to you. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for those kind words. It brings a lot of joy to me to know that the book might be helpful to continuing to build this important movement. Reverend Jennifer Butler is the founding executive director of Faith in Public Life and the former chair of the White House Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Before leading Faith in Public Life, Reverend Butler spent 10 years working in the field of international human rights, representing the Presbyterian Church USA at the United Nations, and is an ordained minister. She's the author of Born Again, The Christian Right Globalized, and today we've been talking about her recent book, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was awesome. <laughs> wow, that was a, like a spiritual experience. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. I don't often get told that. I <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your kind words, too. Oh, gosh, yeah. Writing this book in the midst of a racial justice uprising, COVID, a bunch of family issues. I almost quit a number of times, so it's really good. It's just really wonderful to hear that it might have been worth the blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> well, it certainly was for me, and I, I want my listeners to to be as excited about it as I am because I think it's a, it, it's a really good book, and it's a very timely book, and one one that I hope gets wide readership. You really, I really liked the way that you structured the chapters. I have to say, especially since right now I'm teaching in a Jesuit school and they talk so much mm-hmm. about the power of the imagination, that really was just stood out to me. I was like, she's doing it right, like she's doing the right way. Wow. Yeah. So there's... Oh yeah, the method and what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so... I don't even fully I wasn't even fully aware. I think it's like a very it was a very intuitive thing. So you're helping me, like I say, understand my own book.